This is one of the interesting texts we have in the Gospel of Mark. We call it the Olivet Discourse. And as Lloyd talked about last weekend and some things we want to keep in mind with this passage, that God is in control, that I am secure in Christ, and the Holy Spirit is working in me. But I want to step back just a little bit before we jump back into the Olivet Discourse and, and ask a question that I wrestle with often, and perhaps you do as well. And, and that is the, the idea of the only time I'm truly trusting God, the only time I'm really following Christ or, or clinging on to him is in between. So if I'm in between, uh, if I'm sick and healthy, uh, unemployed, employed, uh, a broken relationship and hoping to mend or find a new relationship, uh, some waiting on, on reports and lab tests and finding out results. Raising little children that can be exhausting and exasperating and hoping that they'll grow up sometime. Uh, dealing with teenagers and praying against all hope that they'll become adults one day and be nice to you again. Uh, we're always in between. We're in between some situation that we don't like and we're hoping for this next chapter to come. And that seems to be the fulcrum or the angle of repose where we draw close to Christ. The corollary is kind of scary to think about when I'm in trouble, that's when I come to him, and that's when I really cultivate my relationship with Christ, compared to contrast to when, you know, when the money's good, the marriage is good, the kids are good, uh, health is good, everything's swimmingly going fine. I don't really need God. Uh, that might shock some of you to hear me say that. I think most of you probably say, yeah, I, I understand what you're getting at. When life is going well by my measure, I really don't need God that much. But when those fulcrum, angle of repose happens, then I get busy with God. Living life in between is difficult, it's challenging. It can create fear, it can create anxiety, it can create all sorts of uncertainties in our Christian life. As Lloyd talked about so well last weekend, we will have, there are a lot of questions in life we're not going to have the answers to. A mature believer learns to live with what if and why questions that are never going to be resolved or answered in our life. On the other hand, Scripture is more than sufficient for a life of sanctification, of faithful living. Scripture is more than sufficient for you and me to live the way God intended us to live. It does not address every answer to every question man may come up with, but it's more than adequate, more than sufficient to live a life of faith and sanctification, to live out our lives for Christ. Now, in chapter 13, verse 1, let's back up to get this frame of this Olivet Discourse. Jesus makes a statement, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. This is the Mount of Olives. On the northeast side, if you think of this as an ice cream cone down in, in Jerusalem, there's a plateau up here where the temple complex was, and then it tapers down like an ice cream cone. And on the east side, you have the Kidron Valley. On the west side, you have Gehenemom or Gehenna. And Mount of Olives is on the northeast side overlooking the city of Jerusalem. It's, it is a hill. It is a mount. It is an olive grove even today. It's not very far from the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a very short walk from where the Garden of Gethsemane would be, even give or take 300 yards. You're talking just a minute's walk to the Mount of Olives. So they're looking across this beautiful temple complex. This is Herod's complex. This is much bigger than the one Solomon built. It's a giant plateau. It's in its grandeur. It's probably the most beautiful it ever looked in history. And Christ says these words over this, we call the Olivet Discourse, He's going to speak of three primary subjects in this long, very complex sermon. He's going to talk about the end of the age, 
the destruction of the temple, and his second coming. He's going to answer a question the disciples ask. We're going to look at it in just a moment in verse 4. About the end of the age, about the destruction of this beautiful complex they're staring at, and about his second coming, his second advent, his return. It's a very long answer to a question they asked in verse 4. If you have your Bible open, Deuteronomy 13, 4. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? So Christ made the statement, what you're looking at is going to be destroyed. And he says a few more things. They interject the question, when? What do we look for? When are things, these things happening? And then we have this Olivet Discourse that we call it. In chapter 13, verses 24 to 37 that Kevin just read, remind us again some of the questions we ask, God is not going to answer the way we would like him to answer straight up with a yes or no, or it's going to be uh, in the year 2025, this is going to happen on June 15th. We're just not going to get those kind of answers. Um, but what Jesus does say is more than sufficient, more than adequate for you and me to live faithfully, not having all our why and what if questions answered. Let's come back to where I began. Is that sufficient for you to live in between? Can you live in between being unhappy and happy, whatever that means? Unhealthy and healthy, whatever that means. Broken relationship and some new or restored relationship, whatever that means. Can you live in between that without having all the why and what if questions answered? It's a very, I think, one-to-one -one application of what they ask, what Jesus answers, and what we can learn as we take this passage apart a little bit at a time. Now, Jesus' primary caution and it's all of a discourse, is, is to be sure that no one leads you astray. Make sure no one leads you astray. When he says this, again, it couldn't be more pertinent than today. There is so much false teaching on the internet, on podcasts, on television, on radio, or however you get your outside of uh, fellowship information. Uh, you, you and I are to be like the Bereans, examine everything. But there's so much bad stuff out there, you almost have to look for the good stuff. And unfortunately, the good stuff isn't always as clever or as entertaining or as compelling than the bad stuff. It's just the way it works. But Christ is saying very clearly, there will be many false teachers. There will be many misleading voices. Now, I've lived this Christian life long enough to see people sort of going, you know, they swarm after the new trend, the new ism, the new ology, and they move in mass by all these things that are really misleading. Christ's words could not be more applicable then or today. Do not be misled. The second main caution, he says, do not be frightened. Do not be frightened. And he says, not when, but if. Now, excuse me, not, not if, but when. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be afraid. And again, Lloyd talked about this at length in, in the, how we are so anxious and fearful of the what-ifs of life. And we get, you know, we, we worry, we stay awake, we, we don't eat well, we don't take care of ourselves, don't be frightened. Um, we've talked many times about you don't tell someone who is strong and courageous to be strong and courageous. You, you tell someone who feels weak and discouraged, weak and afraid to be strong and courageous. He doesn't have to tell Joshua over and over again, be strong and have courage because he's strong and courageous. He's telling him because he feels weak and fearful. So Christ says, number one, don't be misled. Number two, don't be frightened. Third, he says, be on your guard. This text is going to end and begin with that admonition in a form. Because the disciples, in their case, would face persecution, you need to pay attention. You need to be on guard. And fourth, overarching thing he tells them, he says, false prophets 
are going to come along and they're going to show signs and wonders. And he warns them again, don't listen to them. I've already told you everything in advance. These four overarching things Jesus says in the discourse, number one, don't be misled. Number two, don't be afraid. Trust me, not the wars and rumors of wars around you. Number three, be on your guard. And number four, I've already told you everything you need to know. Now, this is so important. Back to my premise, what I think the text is saying, can you live in between without what if and why being answered? He just said, be on guard, don't be afraid, don't, uh, um, uh, 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 excuse me, don't be misled, be, don't be frightened, uh, don't be on guard, and I've already told you all you need to know. Okay, Lord, if that applies today, just like it did then, I should live in faith, not in fear. In between. Because when life is going fine, I don't need any of this, right? To put this in the most simple way I can say for a so what, this is the so what for, for every one of us to remember. God's sovereign, you ain't. God's sovereign, I'm not. And when the what if and why questions can't be resolved, God's sovereign and I'm not. And that's living in faith, not in fear. All right, let's look at this passage with these three primary things Jesus addresses. His second coming, the end of the age, and the destruction of the temple complex. And then we'll apply it to us today. So verses 24 to 27, I'm going to reread again Christ's return. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then they will send forth the angels the angels, and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. This part of the Olivet Discourse has a number of Old Testament references. We can't possibly look at them all and integrate them into what Jesus is doing in this discourse. Again, as a sidebar, the Olivet Discourse is one of Jesus' more complex sermons. The Upper Room Discourse in John, if you take it from John 13 to 18, is another one. You can spend a lifetime in those discourses and never begin to scratch the surface. So understand, we're doing this in 32 minutes, what should be done in hours. So I'm just going to glance and blow on a lot of these, and I want, I'll try to give you a little bit of help along the way. First of all, he says, those days, which connects it to the prior section above, one main verse I would say jot down is Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. Joel 2, verses 28 to 32 to look at. The word tribulation is introduced in our text where Jesus says, in those days, after that tribulation, $64,000 question, what's he referring to? The word tribulation can mean uh, distress, opposition, or affliction. It's an unusual word in the New Testament. Uh, some current English translations are, off, are, are choosing to not use the word tribulation. My guess is, I can't prove it, I don't know the translator's intent, my guess is they're trying to dodge the tribulation discussions. And so they don't use that word anymore, and they use the word oppression or affliction, which is a very generic term. That tribulation sounds like something definitive. Now, there are different camps that view the tribulation differently. Uh, very simply, there were, there's a, the largest camp we would say today looks at the tribulation being what happened in 70 A.D., a Roman general named Titus, no relationship to the books of Titus, comes along and he destroys the, the temple complex and the walls of Jerusalem in 70 AD. It's a historical fact. He destroys the complex. 
So many believe that was the tribulation. That was the oppression of the Jew. Christ has already come. Thirty-some years later, the temple's destroyed. Jesus is not one stone that's going to stand upon another. See, what he prophesied happened. The tribulation is over and done with. That sounds to a point okay until you look at the entire discourse. What is he saying in the whole Olivet Discourse? In other words, did the tribulation already come and gone, and there's no more worry about a tribulation? That would be the application for Christians. If the destruction of the temple complex, we talk about layers of prophecy or bookends of prophecy. So I'm going to suggest there's layers of prophecy. It can be fulfilled in a point in time, but there can also be other things that are yet to be fulfilled. And the way Jesus refers to so many other Old Testament references to me suggests very clearly he's not talking about one event that happened in 70 AD. There's more yet to come. Now, he's going to talk about the sun will be darkened. In the, in the Old Testament, we've got vivid descriptions of this. Isaiah 13 and chapter 34 both had very vivid descriptions about the sun being darkened. We've got many other texts. Now, in your Bible, if you have a real Bible, and I'm so proud to see some of you have real Bibles on your laps. It just makes my heart so warm. You have these little, little tiny letters and numbers above things. Those are called cross-references. You don't always have them in the electronic versions, which I do love, by the way. Um, but I'm going to give you a little assignment, because what I'm going to do is so, high, so quick, and I know some of you are going, this is boring, Michael. I'm with you. Um, if you were to take those cross-references, and you, first of all, go to an office supply store. Do you know what those are? An office supply store, or to Walmart, or Amazon Prime, and buy these things called legal pads. It's paper. Do you remember what paper is? It's paper. Uh, buy a legal pad, and then buy these things called pens. Buy like some colored pens or pencils if you like. And then take your real Bible and look in that real cross-reference and turn back to Joel 2 and look at it and write it on that piece of paper with a pen. It's a really fun exercise. And then use the text in front of you as your primary pad and bring these cross-references together and ask the question, why is Jesus pulling on this Old Testament prophecy to make this Olivet Discourse. This is why people literally spend years studying Christ's sermons. Because the depths are in, you can't fathom them. And the more you do this, it becomes a bit of an addiction. The more you do this, the more you'll want to know what Jesus meant. And this is, this is called Bible study methodology and doing theology. You're thinking beyond a quick cursory reading of a passage. And that's why I'm going to argue this tribulation is not already come and gone because of other things he's saying in here. This will help you clarify why Jesus pulls on these quotations for that audience and for our audience today. Keep in mind three things. They were prophesied, meaning hundreds of years before Christ comes on as the baby who grows to be the man. They're supernatural, and they precede Jesus' second advent. They're prophesied, they're supernatural, and they precede Christ's return. That's so important to keep in mind in this Olivet Discourse. What was the questions the disciples asked? When and what? What do we look for? How do we know these things are going to happen? You just said it's all going to be destroyed. Jesus says the end of the age, my second return, the destruction of the temple. Those are things you're going to watch for. And then he explains in a very high level, they're prophesied, they're supernatural, they're above nature, and they precede my return. He continues, he adds further in this clarification of the quotation, he says the heavens will be shaken. And I'm going to take this literally. 
Those of you who come from a science background, you may think I'm an idiot. Fine. A lot of people think I'm an idiot. That's okay. I'm a big boy. I can handle that. Uh, but I believe in a literal six-day creation. I believe light, even though it travels, what is it, 186,000 miles per second, whatever it is. Uh, I mean, even though you can measure things scientifically, I believe Christ created those things. If he can turn water into wine, if he can give a congenitally blind person a new set of eyes, he can break the laws of physics and biology and science as we measure things. If he can walk on water, if he can calm a storm, if he can raise the dead, he is supernatural. He is above nature. And according to Colossians 1, he created all things and he put them in their place. I love this stuff that the Hubble sends back. I mean, I, I can waste hours looking at those Hubble images. And uh, there's some sites that the government puts out there where you can look at them in high definition, like, you know, they're like 1,800 gigabytes, you know. You can pull them on your computer, and you feel like you're out in outer space looking at stuff. And I, I don't know what the number is, but there's, there's allegedly millions of galaxies we don't even know about. They're out there. There's a center star. There are orbital planetary systems around them that are, are arranged and held together by that. And then the scientists say, well, there's black holes and there's supernovas. And we've never seen one happen, but we, we think they're out there. And maybe they're right. It would make sense if a supernova occurred, it would destroy planets. A black hole could suck space and time into it. Who knows? That's what science fiction is all about, right? If Christ can supersede those laws of physics, those laws of, uh, of biology, of chemistry... If he designed it, could he disrupt it? So I don't think Scripture is speaking metaphorically here about the heavens are shaken. Let's put it in scientific terms. What if the sun goes supernova? Now, that would, of course, destroy us, but I'm just making a point. Science will acknowledge there are catastrophes that can happen. We've just never seen one happen. That's why science fiction is so interesting from a spiritual aspect, because people are captivated by the what-ifs of science and space and things we can't describe. The Son of Man will be coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Daniel 7.13, Revelation 1.7 are key passages here. He's going to send forth his angels to gather his elect. And this is where I want to stop for just a moment. Some of us grew up in traditions where the doctrine of predestination and election are really difficult to choke down. In our small group, just about three or four weeks ago, we're studying through a, a handbook of theology. And the section had to do with predestination and, uh, and election and so forth. And he just, this one guy just couldn't choke down the idea that God predestines or elects people. And, uh, and you know, I'm not mad at him or think he's dumb because he doesn't, you know, believe it. That's okay. When I first came to Christ, I studied this stuff for three years going, I don't understand how this is unfair. And I went through, you know, hours of, you know, obviously immature, I was young, a study trying to figure out what this doctrine was about. Number one from the text, Jesus is saying these things. God's going to get his elect. So Christ says God has people he's chosen. Go back in your mind. He chose Israel, the most stubborn, stiff-necked people group he could show and choose to prove his grace and his mercy. He chose prophets who were unwilling and uninterested in doing what he wanted him to do. He chose kings who didn't want to be kings. And on and on it goes. And he chose you. If you're a believer in Christ, and he chose me. Well, that's not fair to the people he doesn't choose. The best illustration I can give you, and, and to put it in a sentence, the doctrines of predestination and election have no application for a person who doesn't yet know Christ. 
The doctrines of predestination and election have no application for a person that doesn't know Jesus. It's a non-secular argument. It's like asking a single person to buy a retirement home. It doesn't apply. It's not yet part of the program. A person who's 12 years old, you want to build a nursery in your house for your children. It doesn't apply. It has no application for the non-believer. The doctrines of election predestination only have application to a person who comes to Christ, and as they're walking along their journey of faith, they, they hear, they're introduced to these words, and they go, wait a minute, wait a minute, what's this mean? And as you study it, what you find, lots of rabbit trails, but the first big door you find is, he chose me. And the next question is, why? The doctrine of application of election and predestination has to do for the believer to hold his or her salvation with such, with such care and importance and primacy in our lives. He chose me. Why did he choose you? For no good reason of your own. You nor I were better than anybody. In this passage, in one quick sentence, Jesus says, His elect from the ends of the earth, ends of heaven. What's he mean by that? Well, earth obviously has to do with the habitable planet. Heaven has to do with what? Those who are dead. Those who are elect, whether they've already died or they're still living, Christ is going to call them back. There are also national images here. Deuteronomy 30 is a, a passage of the Bible. They often go back to Christ is going to call his people back to that piece of dirt. Many of my Christian friends, whom I love and respect, do not think Israel has any more part of the storyline. Israel's had their chance, and they're, they're gone. They're done. It's called replacement theology. We replaced the Israel with the church today because he, this is the church age. And there's some good merit for their arguments. I just can't cut out a lot of the Bible that talks about the land and the promise yet to be fulfilled. I'm unwilling to cut out Deuteronomy chapter 30 in mass because the person says, well, it doesn't apply anymore. Deuteronomy 30, verses 3 through 6 are, to me, benchmark passages that say, no, he's going to regather his nation. Lots of scripture teaches this. The second coming of Christ, when the Redeemer returns, he's going to collect his people together. The timing and the sequence of that are what if and why questions we may not have precise answers to. They're veiled somewhat until the end of time. McKenna remarks, the sign of his coming is given. When the sign of his coming is given, it'll defy scientists and pseudoscientists, astronomers and astrologers, but there will in no way, no way will it be misleading to its purpose. Uh, whether you're an astrologer or an astronomer, one who studies the stars or who reads the stars, you're going to be blown away at this grandeur. When Christ returns in these few verses, this is going to be the most breathtaking thing a person on the planet will ever witness. The glory of Christ will appear. Doubters will no longer doubt. Those who are skeptics will no longer be skeptical. I don't recommend movies. I, I would never recommend a movie. Well, maybe a G-rated movie. Uh, but The Arrival, this new movie that's around right now, some of you may have seen it. Uh, my kids said, Dad, Dad, you, you love The Arrival. You've got to see The Arrival. So we, we rented the DVD, and uh, six of us watched it in our home a few weeks back. And it's just these things that come all over the earth, and they look like a pea kind of thing, and um, like a lens. And they're all hanging over the earth. And it's an interesting study in how these countries would, would respond to an extraterrestrial coming and how to communicate with them and yada, yada, yada. The subtext for the story for me was how... Different people look at this thing differently. 
When something showed up they couldn't explain or identify, they all had theories, some militarily, some sociologically, some want to worship it, some want to communicate with it, so forth and so on. And, of course, the Americans always look good. Uh, but the, the way they depicted this film was something shows up, people respond differently. When Christ returns, there's going to be no doubt about his return. Will people rebel? Will people hate him? Yes. But when he comes in the clouds of glory and he descends on that second advent, let me tell you something. Your what if and why questions, mine, aren't going to matter. And we've got to, we've got to reframe our faith, men and women, from living so horizontally to when this happens, this stuff doesn't matter anymore. When you're in stage four cancer and getting chemo and radiation as sick as a dog and weigh 110 pounds, this stuff doesn't matter anymore. When life gets at that fulcrum, at that, at that angle of repose, it doesn't matter anymore because all things are vertical. And this is the hard part about the Christian faith. When things are going swimmingly, I don't need God. And so the corollary is a bit frightening. Does he allow these things so you and I are aligned with him? Well, Jesus is still answering the question the disciples posed in chapter 13, verse 3. Tell us then, when will these things be? What will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? First he talked about his return. Now he talks in a parable about a fig tree, verse 28. Learn the parable from the fig tree. Fig tree. Fig tree. When its branches already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you will know summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize he's near, at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. Now, we don't want to overwork a parable. We want to take it as a baseline. What would the first century mind, person, hearer of the story, how would they understand this? This is a very simple parable. It doesn't take a lot of scratching our heads. You know what an evergreen is. If you have a Leland cypress or any type of cypress tree in your yard or neighborhood, those are evergreens, right? When the weather gets cold, they might turn a little gold. They might lose a little bit, but they keep all their leaves. A deciduous tree drops everything. And then you get to rake it up. That's how you know they're deciduous. They're part of the fall, in my opinion. But anyway, so, so the maple and the oak and all these things, they fall, and you've got to rake it up or pay somebody to come clean up your yard, right? That's a deciduous tree. This, to me, is a little bit irony. He's on the Mount of Olives. Olive trees are evergreens. They don't drop their leaves unless there's a drought. And he's talking about a fig tree, which is deciduous. It drops its leaves. When we take folks to Israel, we go to what's known as Tel Dan. It's much like hiking in the lower foothills of Colorado. It's beautiful. The water coming out, you won't believe the amount of water that comes out of the springs in Dan. Lush environment. You're hiking around, and all of a sudden these little, wild, I like to go in the spring because the weather's more mild, and these little uh, fig tree, wild fig tree, it's like, this is a fig tree. Go, You're right. The figs are a little tiny, and you can tell by the shape of the leaf that's a fig tree. They're all over Israel, wild as well as is planted on purpose. Jesus is simply saying, when you see that happen, you know, hey, summer's around the corner. The tree is on a schedule that we can't figure out. And when certain weather things start to happen, atmospheric, the, the, the tilt of the axis, all those things of the earth and the moon, everything starts to line up, the weather starts to change. Can you predict precisely when? No. But you get a ballpark. When those shoots start coming out, summer's around the corner. 
I mean, this is our ninth year living in Tennessee. I've never seen this green of a June in the nine years I've been here. It's beautiful. Everybody's allergies are out the wazoo, but it's beautiful. And he says, even so you too, verse 29, when you see these things happening, what's he talking about? When you see the, let's say, rumblings of the temple destruction of the end of the age and my second return, when you see the rumblings of things, know that they're near. Now, he gives three ways to explain this. And if you looked at your Bible carefully, you may have already seen it. The word pass away occurs three times. It's negative, positive, negative. Will not pass away, will pass away, will not pass away. Pay really close attention because I'm going to give you a little bit of Michael Easley heresy this morning. First of all, he says this generation will not pass away. Then he says heaven and earth will pass away. Then he says my words will not pass away. Let's take them in order briefly. This generation will not pass away. Big question of what in the world does Jesus mean when he talks about this generation? Most people believe he's talking about those who are alive at that time. Those who are hearing him talk, the disciples and those people. And he says, this generation is not going to die, that's the way they understand it, until these things happen. Well, that kind of has argument then for 70 A.D. The people that heard me say these things in 30-some years when the temple's destroyed, they're going to say, that's what Jesus predicted. But let's analyze the word generation just a little bit. Jesus usually refers to a wicked and perverse generation. Rarely does he talk about a generation with a time sequence. In the Old Testament, a generation had to do with ancestral lineage. They're of the seed of Abraham, the seed of Isaac, the seed of Jacob, the seed of David. And those were lineages. We think of generations in the same murky kind of way. When we talk about the greatest generation is dying off. What do we mean by that? Those men and women who lived during World War II. And every once in a while you'll see a, 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 something on the news where this 96-year-old person or 89 or 115, they fought in Normandy, and, we re, and they go, the greatest generation is dying off. Let me ask you a question. Is there a line that says, okay, that generation is dead? If you're 89 and now 87, are you part of which generation? So the word generation can be used in some complicated ways. We're overworking this. I'm going to suggest to you a theory that I haven't read anywhere. That's why I say it's heresy. So write it in pencil if you're taking notes or take a little nap right now. I'm going to suggest he's not talking about those people in earshot. I'm going to suggest he's talking about people. This generation, meaning people, will not pass away. Hang on, I'll show you why I hold this heresy. Secondly, he says heaven and earth will pass away. The context in which you and I inhabit, earth... And the heavens that we look at, the stars in the sky, the planets we have identified in our solar system, I suspect in another 10, 20, 30 years, they're going to find some planets they've missed in our solar system. Just like they've kicked some out, right? Because they weren't really planets. We're going to see more things as technology gets more advanced. The world is flat. We've had nine planets all of my life. No, now we've got eight. Well, there might be ten. Who knows, right? As these things progress, what Jesus is saying, heaven and earth will pass away. And in the third bookend, he says, my words will not pass away. The words of works of Jesus Christ are eternal. They cannot pass away. No matter if people disregard them or embrace them, it doesn't matter. They're not going to pass away. Now look at what Mark's done structurally. Not pass away, will pass away, not pass away. What is he saying? God's people 
or people generically, and God's word are eternal. What you see experientially as heaven and earth are not. I think Mark, the way he's recording this, is stressing from Jesus' words, you're gonna, you're look, you're, what does it look like when the end times come? What does it look like when these things are rolling up? What should we watch for in your second coming and the destruction of the temple complex and the end of the age? Which raises the question about the destruction of the temple complex. Was he simply talking about the religious system that was being destroyed in Jerusalem in 70 AD? Or is he talking about the destruction of the entire system? Heaven and earth are going to be gone. But people and the word are eternal. Okay, that's my heresy for the year. You can buy it or not. Two things that are eternal he's talking about in this Olivet Discourse. My word and people are eternal. Nothing else you see is eternal. My word and my people are eternal. Verse 32, on that day or hour, no one knows. The time of the second coming is veiled. It's unpredictable like the seasons. Yes, we get a little hint that summer is around the corner, but we don't know precisely. The futurists and those who predict it are almost comical. In, in, in the 70s, when I was young in Christ, you know, now people go to uh, the Passion Conference and the, what, 40,000 people go to the Passion Conference each year? In the 70s, we went to prophecy conferences. We went to end times conferences. Maybe not 40,000 people, but they had thousands all over the country in these multiple site things where these gurus of different prophetic things all met together and pitched their idea for what the end times In the 70s, it was the late great planet Earth and the tribulation series from Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye coming out. They were selling millions of books. Uh, Jerry told me once that any one of his books on the end times has outsold more than, uh, I think he's up to 250 books he's written now. Any one book he's written in that series has outstripped all his other books cumulative. It's crazy how people were so into the end times. And now we're like, oh, we're bored with it. Now we're concerned about other things, but these things come and go. To sum all this up, don't live in fear, live in faith. Don't live in fear, he would say to his men, live in faith. These things are going to pass away, what you see. My word and people will not pass away. Thirdly, his exhortation to be alert, verse 33, take heed, keep on the alert. Do not, you do not know when the appointed time will come. It's like a man away on a journey. So we've got another little story, another little parable pericope. Upon leaving his house, putting his slaves in charge, assigning each one his task the commander, he commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in evening, midnight, when the rooster crows, or morning, in case that he comes suddenly and finds you asleep. What I say to you, be on the alert. Take heed and be on the alert, round out. We start with, start with be on guard, and now we've got be on the alert. That's the bookend of the Olivet Discourse. Or to sum it up, pay attention. Take heed, be on guard. Four times in the passage I've reread, you have the phrase, keep on the alert, stay on the alert, be on the alert, be on the alert, don't miss it. Repetition is the mother of learning, correct? Now, this idea of keep on the alert means to be vigilant, to be on watch. Nobody likes to stay vigilant. My son, who was in the Marine Corps, uh, hated the late 
shift of being on watch. You're on a base, number one, so it's not like there's going to be trouble on a military base, but you've got to stand watch. He says, Dad, you better not fall asleep if they inspect. If they inspect and find you nodding off, you're in deep trouble. If they, some of you who are in the military understand this far better than me. Staying alert is difficult. We, uh, those in the security team here, you have seen uh, here at the campuses we have, go through hundreds of hours of training each year. They all do it. They do it volunteer. They love. They love to protect you and your kids. So when you're here, you don't have to worry about one thing. And one of the first things that we're taught is a color code system taught by a, a former Marine named uh, Colonel Cooper. And he came up with this color coded system of white, yellow, orange, red, black. And we talk mostly about the white, yellow, orange, and a little bit about red. White is what's essentially you're, you're just, you're unaware of your surroundings. You're oblivious. Most of you right now are oblivious. You're just sitting here thinking about when's he going to finish so I can go get my kids to go to lunch. That's what your mind is focused on. Oblivious people pull into the parking lot at Walmart and they park by anything around them. They find a space. They're digging through their purse, their bag, getting their phone out, their keys out. They're not paying attention. Looking, they're walking to the, to the front of the store doing this. You know, that's oblivious. That's not paying attention. Condition yellow is called a relaxed awareness. Relaxed awareness. And the security, and if, by the way, women who go through self-protection, uh, self-defense classes, any of you who do that, this is what you're going to learn. Relax. Pay attention. Pay attention. No, you're not freaking out. You're just paying attention. So when you go to Walmart, you don't park by a big panel van. You park away from other vehicles that are bigger than you. You park under the street light, under the light. You park away from all the cars. You get all your gear together before you get out of the car. You're looking you're not freaking out. You're not paranoid. You're just paying attention. And when you don't carry the, the purse that's got, you know, $1,800 in it. You carry a little bit of money in your pocket. It's like going to New York City. Put your wallet in your front pocket. Have one credit card in cash. Leave the rest back in your room, right? You'd be smart. Just relaxed alert. You're not paranoid. You're relaxed alert. Condition orange is there's a conflict, and you feel it here typically. Something's not right you walking in the parking lot, and, and you, is that sketchy person looking at me, or am I just being suspicious? The rule of thumb with, with orange is get out of there. Don't fight it. Don't confront it. Get out. Go home. Get away. In fact, I can save you from going to yellow to orange. Don't go to Walmart parking lot. <laughs> Use Amazon Prime. Stay in condition white in your home. Be oblivious to all what I'm talking about. Just be oblivious to it. <clears throat> you don't need to worry about it. Condition red, you're in a fight. Condition black, it's really bad. So I want you to think about condition yellow spiritually. Relaxed alert. Relaxed alert. You don't fear with wars and rumors of wars. You don't fear when crazy theology enters the church. You don't get freaked out when some new trend happens. You don't worry about who's in the White House or who's out of the White House or who's under investigation. You don't worry about jobs. You don't worry about in-between. You're relaxed alert. I think that is a great way to remember a spiritually sober view of living in between times. Well, Jesus applies this to the disciples a number of ways. He talks about the doorkeeper. I love the King's English. Talked about porter was the word. He left the porter in charge. Um, he leaves his house and he puts it entrusted in the hands of people who are going to be vigilant to watch for his return. Living in between can certainly be a time of anxiety and fear, but he doesn't want us to stay there. That's not how he intended. 
Scripture is more than sufficient for you and me to live a life of sanctification and faithfully until he returns. This is more, he's already told you what you need to know. Do you believe that? Because when you and I go to fear and anxiety and stress and condition orange, we're off, we're off track. He said, I already told you. Don't be afraid. Don't be misled. Be on guard. And I've already told you what you need to know. He's trying to calm his friends who are freaking out about what's going to happen in the end times. And is it going to be in their lifetime? Don't worry about the time. Relax alert. Don't be misled. Don't, don't forget what I told you. Remember what I've told you, everything you need to know. Or more simply, God's sovereign and you and I ain't. Good questions deserve good answers, but we're not always going to get the answers we would like to have, and that's called living faithfully. Which, back to my corollary and my own journey, is I think that's where faith makes up its mind. In between here and there. Am I going to trust you when I don't know the resolution to this situation? Infertility, illness, my marriage relationship, a divorce, a remarriage. Go fill in the blanks endlessly. Whatever that in-between that's wearing you out, step back. Don't be misled. Don't be afraid. Be on guard. I told you what you need to know. That's living in condition yellow. Relaxed Christian alert. Paying attention to what you're paying attention to. I'd like to end with a prayer from, I want to take what Paul, the elder statements, told Timothy. Uh, it's because told Titus, the young, the young pastor, planter, church planter, in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. And actually, I'd like you to stand and read this with me. I think we have it on projection. Do we grant? Yes. Would you read with me? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of our glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. God bless you. Have a great week.